Well, good morning, OCC. How are you guys doing today? Hey, I am, I'm incredibly excited. Uh, a few months back, OCC began a new ministry partnership with Lincoln Christian University. And Lincoln Christian University is actually the place where I graduated from seminary. Uh, we've got another uh, staff member, too, who have been uh, working with LCU. And uh, we've just begun a great new partnership with that Bible college. <clears throat> and um, I'm especially, especially excited because today we get to bridge the gap a little bit. Um, and I get to introduce you to a member of LCU. Uh, my buddy David Upchurch is the director of church ministries. And so this guy's been in ministry a while. Um, he's a central Illinois guy like me, but he's also spent some time down here in Kentucky. He'll tell you a little bit about that. Um, but he's been a mentor and friend and just one of the godliest men I know. Uh, just a great servant of Jesus. And so today, he's here representing LCU. You may have seen the booth uh, out, out uh, in the lobby today when he came in, for those of you on campus. Um, but you get to hear from David. And I'm telling you, just hold on, because he's bringing it today. And he's got something good for you. So if you're not normally taking notes, get out your phone, get on your notes app, and you're going to want to take some notes. As this guy knows what he's doing with the Word of God. So, OCC... I'm excited to introduce you to my buddy David. Would you give him just a big round of applause? Well, good morning. It is so good to be here. It's a better morning than that, though. Good morning. morning. Hey, would you express your appreciation to the worship team for what they did and what they do every week? I... I get to be in a different church almost every week, and you are blessed here with that. And I hope you already know this, uh, but Fitz is one of the best young preachers that our country has. Would you express your love for him as well? And sometimes he throws that mentor word in uh, about me, and that just means I'm old, okay? I'm older than him. But it is so good to be with you today, and I, I get to uh, be in church and talk about the church. And I, I love the church. I grew up in the church. There, there was never a time in my life that if, if the doors were open, we were there. When I was a kid, we were there every Sunday morning for Sunday school and church. We came back on Sunday night for youth group and church. If the doors were open, we were there. Church was such an important part of my growing up years that sometimes my friends and I would play church. Let me just, any of you ever played church? We, we would gather and, and we would take turns doing the preaching or the teaching. Uh, we would sing some of the old hymns. Uh, we would have communion. Now, we didn't have the wafer and the grape juice, but we just made do with whatever we had. My favorite of all time was we had a Heath bar and dad's root beer. It was a communion service to be remembered. And I grew up in the country, and, and behind our, our pasture, uh, in the back, we had a crick that ran through it, and sometimes we would baptize people in the crick. They didn't always want to be baptized, but we baptized them anyway. I've always been in the church. When I was 19 years old, I was a sophomore at Lincoln Christian University, and I became a weekend youth minister in a, a church up uh, kind of in the suburbs of Chicago, and I, I had no idea what I was doing, but I did it with enthusiasm and uh, for the last 43 years, I've, I've been in ministry. And I'm, I'm, I'm never claimed to be the sharpest knife in the drawer. I know I'm never the smartest guy in the room. But I've learned a few things in 43 years. And here's one of the things I've learned. 
Kids aren't the only ones who know how to play church. Adults know how to play church too. Are you tracking with me? Sometimes entire congregations know how to play church. In fact, today across our land, there will be buildings kind of like this with people who gather and they'll sing the songs and they'll hear a message and they'll pray the prayers and they, they, they take communion and they go home and nothing has changed. Nothing has changed within them and nothing changes out in the community because of them. They just simply showed up and went to church. They, they went through the motions. They played church. And we need to know, we need to understand, and we need to practice, live out in our practice, that God hasn't called us to play church. God has called us to be the church. And it's so easy to go through the motions and not even realize that we're doing it. And that's why I would suggest that as we continue with this second message in the Revelation series, that when we look today at the, the letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 that Jesus wrote, I'm going to suggest that the context of these letters was a tone of disappointment. That Jesus was disappointed with the churches because they were just going through the motions. They were playing church. Last week, Fitz began his message with this question about studying Revelation. He said, the driving question is, what can Revelation tell me about being a faithful follower of Jesus all the time? That's a great question. I'm going to kind of hitchhike on that, uh, piggyback on that, and let's say this about today for the church. The driving question is, what can Revelation tell me about being a faithful member of the body of Christ, his church? That's what we're going to consider today. When we read the, the letters to the seven churches that existed over 2,000 years ago, I think it becomes evident that they weren't that different than many of our churches today. And we don't have time today. I've been given a time limit. I don't know what your time limit is. I only have five hours to get through this. I don't know how that fits your schedule, but I've only been given a few minutes to do this, so we can't read all the seven churches. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna speed through here. We're gonna pick three churches that kind of represent three different views of what was going on and then we're going to spend the most of our time in application. So let's look at the first church. It's in uh, chapter 2. It's a church in Ephesus. And it was a church lacking in love. And Jesus, when he begins the letter to this church, he highlights some good things that they were doing. But then he, he says this. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent... I will come to you and remove your lapstand from its place. If you've been around the church long enough to have heard this read in other versions, other translations, you, you might remember it better this way. You have forsaken your first love. I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. And, and I've always been taught and I've believed, and, and I think there's, there's validity to this, that forsaking the first love means that they didn't love Jesus the way they used to. They, they, they didn't love Jesus as much. And, and I, I would say that that is true, but it probably goes beyond that as well. You may remember when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. 
And just like that, he added, and the second is love your neighbor as yourself. He connected the two. It's pretty hard to love God and not love people. So I would suggest that forsaking their first love is you're forsaking it all. You're not loving God the way you ought to, and you're not loving people the way you ought to. The Revised Standard Version says this in verse 4. It says, remember then from what you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. That word remember is the word that Jesus had for the church in Ephesus. The second church is the church in Philadelphia, and, and that is a, a, a faithful church. There was no rebuke, only, only compliments for this church. But here's what Jesus says. He says, I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. This is a really good church, but they were going through tough times. And Jesus says to this church, hold on. You're doing a great job. Hold on. Don't let go. Don't give up. Hold on. And then we'll look at one more church, and it's the church in Laodicea. And the church in Laodicea is what we'll call a lukewarm church. And here's what Jesus said to this church. I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Those whom I love, and I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. It doesn't appear as though this church in Laodicea was an evil church. They, they, they weren't doing a lot of really, really bad things. They weren't cold, but they weren't hot. They were just lukewarm. And, and I love how the message paraphrases this. It says, you're stale, you're stagnant, you make me want to vomit. How would you like to be the church that Jesus describes, you make me want to vomit? But that was a church in Laodicea. And Jesus' word to that church was the word repent. So what does that mean for us today? What do these letters reveal about the church? Well, 2,000 years later, are, are we any different than the churches in Revelation 2 and 3? Do we struggle with some of the same issues they struggled with? Well, sure we do. Are some churches today going through the motions with really, without really having a passionate love for Jesus? Uh, I, I think there are more churches today than we would like to admit that probably resemble a country club more than a church, where membership has its privileges. And what I like, what I think, what I prefer is more important than really being the body of Christ and reaching lost people. Have some churches allowed the culture to determine what is right and wrong, what is acceptable, what is unacceptable, instead of letting the word of God determine what is right and wrong? You bet. There are a lot of churches like that. Is there sin or false teaching going on in churches, but instead of confronting it and correcting it, we just sit back and say things like, well, who are we to judge? Of course there are. And here's what I, I want to hold out to you. It, it's like these seven churches are like we're holding a mirror and we get to see ourselves the way Jesus sees us, not the way we see ourselves. And we need that. I, I'm sure that these churches didn't see themselves the way Jesus saw them. 
But it's what Jesus sees that matters. And so every church that he wrote to, he gave action steps. And that's what I want to focus on for the rest of the message. Let's lift out those four words that we've already looked at and see what that means. Let's unpack that together today. The first word is the word repent. In three of the letters, Jesus used that word repent. That that word repent in the Greek language was a military term, and it meant an about face. That you're walking this way, you're walking away from God, you turn and you start walking toward God. You're walking this way, you're doing something wrong, you stop it and you turn and you do something right. You start living right. If I were to come up to you after the service, we're out in the lobby, and I walk up to you, and I smile, and then I just slap you across the face. How many would really like that? Man, why, why, would, why would you do that? But I could make it all better if I say, oh, I am sorry. That makes it all better, right? Maybe not, but it's a good first step. But then I haul off and I slap you again, and I say, Sorry. How many times am I going to have to slap you before you think, he doesn't seem sorry? You see, if I'm really sorry, then I need to stop it. If I'm really sorry, then I need to stop being mean and start being nice. I need to stop doing the wrong thing and start doing the right thing. A part of Jesus' rebuke for the churches was repent. Stop doing what you're doing And start doing what you're supposed to be doing. Now let let me just kind of go a little different direction here for a minute. I am so thankful for God's grace and forgiveness. Can I get an amen? I am so thankful for God's grace and forgiveness. And I'm thankful that more churches today seem to be teaching on grace and forgiveness. When I was a kid going to church... I don't remember many sermons on grace and forgiveness. There were a lot of sermons and lessons about the rules. Uh, When I was a kid, the the thou shalt nots were pretty big. And usually anything that was fun, it was thou shalt not. My my preacher growing up had a a five-finger exercise, and he's a wonderful man, impacted my life. But he had this five-finger exercise that on a regular basis he would say, Christians don't, and he put his hand up, smoke, drink, cuss, chew, go with girls who do. When I was a kid, it seemed like he went through that every week. I know he didn't, but it seemed like it. And I used to think those were five of the Ten Commandments. And I used to think if I can avoid what we called the big five, maybe God would love me. Maybe I could go to heaven someday. But that isn't what makes God love us, and that isn't what gets us to heaven. It is the grace of God. It is the forgiveness of God. You see, our God doesn't care so much what happened yesterday. He's more concerned about today and tomorrow. I'm thankful that we're talking more about grace. But at the same time, churches need to teach more about repentance. That doesn't mean that we walk around with a sign in public places, repent or die. But it does mean that we love people enough to tell them the truth. We love people enough to tell them, God cares about what you believe, and God cares about what you do. God cares about how you treat people. And if you're doing the wrong thing, God has something better, and you need to repent. You need to stop it and start doing what's right. When I read through the Gospels, and and you see Jesus encountering people, and you see all these lessons 
he didn't just beat the repentance drum every lesson. And yet he had to teach repentance because the people who flocked to him were the lowest of the low in the eyes of society. They, they were involved with every kind of sin you can imagine. And yet when they flocked to Jesus, they changed. There was repentance that was taking place. And the thing I see about Jesus as I read through the Gospels is that he didn't beat the, the sin out of them. He didn't guilt the sin out of them. He didn't shame the sin out of them. Jesus had a way of loving the sin out of people. And as a body of Christ, that's what we need to do. And a part of loving the sin out of people is helping them to understand repentance. Now, usually in the church, we think, well, we agree with that. There are people out there who are living terrible lives and they need to repent. But here's the deal. These letters to the seven churches, they weren't to the people out there. They were to us. And Jesus is saying, hey, church, you need to repent. So what does that look like for us today? Well, let, let me introduce you. I, I've, I preached for 34 years in four located ministries. One was just few miles away, Mercer County, Harrodsburg, Kentucky. I preached there for six and a half years. I've been at Lincoln for the last uh, nine years. And uh, I, I've had a lot of people in my ministry. Some have been very encouraging, some haven't. So let me introduce you to four people who I think Jesus would say, you need to stop it. You need to repent. The, the first guy, I call him Anonymous Al. Anonymous Al loves to write letters and notes and cards. And, and they're usually critical or complaining and he doesn't sign his name. It's anonymous. I, when, when I first started in ministry, those letters ate my lunch. I, I can't tell you how many kingdom hours I wasted trying to figure out who might have written this letter. And that was back before we had all the computers and everything. And so most of them were handwritten. Does it look like a left-handed person or a right-handed person? Have I seen this word or phrase used by, by anyone? I wasted a ton of kingdom hours. And one night I, I took one into an elders meeting and I said, guys, we got another one. And one of the elders said, let me see that. And I handed it to him. He wadded it up and threw it away. And he said, from now on, that's what we do with anonymous letters. If they don't sign their name, we don't read it. And I'm so thankful for that elder and the kingdom hours he saved me over the next 40 years. But here, here's an interesting thing. I, I discovered anonymous letters have been around for a long, long time. D.L. Moody, the great evangelist from a long time ago, he told a story about he was with a group of people and he reached in his pocket and he felt a piece of paper and he remembered someone had given him this piece of paper earlier in the day. And so he pulled it out and he, he opened it, it was folded, he opened it and it had one word written on it. Now this is my first time in Oklahoma. I don't know if I should use this word in church or not. We use it in Mercer County, but I don't know if we should use it, I should use it here. So I learned a long time ago, when in doubt, leave it out. So I'm going to give you a clue, okay? It's another word for donkey. You think you have it? Some are still looking a little fuzzy, so let me give you one more clue. If you're thinking jackrabbit, you're only halfway there, and that's my last clue, okay? So that, that was written, and, and D.L. Moody looked around, and he said, now this is a first. I've had a lot of times where people wrote a letter and they forgot to sign their name. This guy signed his name and forgot to write the letter. <laughs> That's how I feel about Anonymous Al. I call the second guy Tightwad Tom. And Tightwad Tom has a, a mantra and it goes like this. If I don't get my way, I'm not going to give my money. 
My friends, there are churches across our land being held hostage by Tightwad Tom. And let me tell you something I hope you already know. God is rich. God owns the cattle in a thousand hills. He doesn't need Tom's money, and neither do we. And it's a terrible, terrible motivation for giving. I'm only going to give if I get my way. No, that's not the way it should work. I call the third person complaining Carl. And complaining Carl just, he lives up to his name. It doesn't matter. He doesn't like Carl anything. The thing he hates more than anything else is change. Man, if you change anything, he's going to complain about it. Carl's the kind of guy that in my last ministry before I started working at, at the school, we had a, a Saturday night service and three Sunday morning services. And we had one of those weekends that it was just like a weekend in heaven because uh, we had a bunch of baptisms and the attendance was, was skyrocketed and, and spirit was great. It was so good. And Carl came up to me after the last service and he said, Preacher, I didn't like that one song we sang. And I looked at him and I said, well, thank you, Carl. By the way, we weren't singing it to you. <laughs> but you know, I think complaining Carl really cares more about whether he likes that song than he does there are lost people going to hell. Complaining Carl is one of the guys that, that are in so many churches. And, and I call the, the fourth guy, Behind My Back Bob. Behind My Back Bob has his way of... If he doesn't like something, he never would come to me, but he would go to a lot of other people behind my back. And he didn't always say, man, I think we're making a mistake here. I don't like what we're doing here. I think this is a terrible thing. He would do more. He reminds me of the serpent in the garden with Adam and Eve. He just kind of asked a question. Did God really say that? Hey, what do you think about that thing we're doing now at church? What do you think? It's a little different, isn't it? And he just plants seeds. And those seeds grow into dissension and division. And instead of coming and talking to me, he will go and talk to everyone else. Folks, here's what I believe. If Jesus were to write a letter to churches today, he would say to Al and Tom and Carl and Bob, Stop it! Stop it! Repent! You're hurting my body. You're hurting my church. Stop it. Repent. Stop doing the wrong thing and start doing the right thing. Perhaps the second word Jesus would have for the church today is remember. We need to remember who we are and we need to remember why we're here. To the church in Sardis, Jesus said, wake up. But then he goes on and says, remember what you have received and heard. When I, when I read through these seven letters, it appears as though at least five of them, and this is pretty early on in history, five of them had already forgotten who they were and why they were here. The church in Ephesus had forgotten their first love. And Jesus said, remember. Remember how you used to love. Get back to that. I get called in quite a bit to consult with churches, and, and a lot of times it's because they're having problems. Uh, they're unhealthy. There's divisions that are taking place. People aren't getting along. People aren't loving each other. And, and here's what I see. I don't think I've ever been called into a church that is in turmoil 
that's experiencing baptisms every week. You see, they're, they're more focused on fighting than they are winning lost people. And, and the churches that are having baptisms every week, we never get called in about problems and divisions and fights because they remember who they are and why they're there. We need to remember who we are and why we're here. So let me introduce you to a few people I've met in churches who are great examples of remembering who we are. They've helped me to remember why we're there. I I call the first guy Ernie the Encourager. And Ernie's one of those guys that if you walk in a room and Ernie's there, you just feel better. Do you you know someone like that? Do you know an Ernie that you just walk in a room? He doesn't have to say anything. You just feel better because Ernie's there. Ernie's the kind of guy that I'd find out he's in the hospital. And so I'd go to the hospital to visit him and and minister to him and and encourage him. And I'd walk out to the parking lot. I'm I'm getting ready to get in my car. And I just stop and think, how did that happen? Ernie ministered to me. Ernie encouraged me. And church, we need a lot more Ernie's in the church today. We live in a world and a culture And so often in churches where discouragement is all around us, we need Ernie the encouragers. I call the next person Harry the helper. And you're you're probably not going to see Harry up on stage. He's not going to be teaching, preaching, leading worship. But man, he's there. And if you need anything, he's the guy. Whatever he can do to help, he'll, he'll be there. We need a lot more Harry the helpers in the church today. I, I call the third person Pat the prayer warrior. And Pat, man, she can pray for you when you can't pray for yourself. I don't know if you've ever been in a place like this, but I've been in some of those times in my life where it's dark. And, and, and I haven't lost my faith. I, I pray, but it feels like my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. Have you ever been in a time like that? And then I get through that, that dark time, and life is good again. And I look back, and I think, how did that happen? Well, Pat prayed me through it. Pat was praying for me when I had a hard time praying for myself. In church, we need a lot more Pat the prayer warriors in the church today. We need men and women and boys and girls who will pray and pray and pray. Now, let me tell you about one more person. And before I do that, I need to tell you something. Preachers say that we don't have favorites. You need to know we lie. Because this last person, this fourth person, has been my favorite for 43 years. I call her Betty the Baker. (laughs) And Betty the Baker knows the perfect time to stop by with a, a plate of chocolate chip cookies or coconut cream pie or German chocolate cake. Now, this is my first time here at Okalona. I don't know if I'll ever be invited back or not, but just in case, let me repeat that. And some of you ought to be taking notes. Chocolate chip cookies, coconut cream pie, German chocolate cake. And I have no idea what it is, but there are times where a plate of chocolate chip cookies delivered at just the perfect time is almost spiritual. There are so many things I don't know and I don't understand, but here's one thing I do know. You give me a church filled with Ernie's and Harry's and Pat's and Betty's, and we can turn Okalona and the surrounding Louisville area upside down for Jesus Christ. <laughs> Folks, it isn't rocket science, is it? It's how are we doing it, loving God and loving people. 
It's remember who we are. Remember why we're here. And let's do it. Let's look at one more phrase, two words. Hold on. Hold on. To the church that's facing persecution and tough times, Jesus said, hold on to what you have until I return. What does that mean, hold on to what you have? Well, let me suggest that the only thing worth holding on to isn't a thing. He's a person. He's Jesus. He's the only one that we can hold on to if we want real security. You know, in life, we we tend to look at things that give us security, like a job. We think, man, I've got this great job. But man, in in a culture of downsizing and, and, and all the ups and downs of the economy, jobs aren't always secure, are they? So, we, so I've got my house and I've got my cars, but we know they can break down, they, they can rust out, they can burn. So many things that can happen to them. Well, at least I've got my health. Until there's a tingling in the chest, or a CAT scan reveals something, or a thing called a pandemic. The only security we have is the person of Jesus. But here's what I I think these seven churches teach us. Here's something that we we need to understand. We tend to hold on to the things we should let go of, and we let go of what we should hold on to. We tend to hold on to our mistakes. We hold on to our failures. We hold on to our sin. We hold on to our guilt. We hold on to our shame. We hold on to things that, that aren't good for us, and we let go of the one who is best for us. And we need to learn to let go of the things we need to let go of and hold on to Jesus. And Jesus seems to say, no matter what you face, no matter what persecution takes place, no matter what temptation Jesus may throw at you, no matter how tough life gets, hold on. Hold on to me. So let's, uh, let's kind of land the plane. Let's, let's get real personal here and ask what if Jesus were to write a letter to the church here in Oklahoma? What do you think he would say? What would he say gather to those gathered here today, those who are joining us online? Well, being a, a guest speaker, I don't have first-hand experiences. I don't have the history. I don't know individual people and, and who to call out. And Aren't you happy about that? Aren't you kind of relieved? But I know people. And I, I don't think the church today is that different than the church 2,000 years ago. And, and my guess is those people that we talked about, they're in every church. There, there's a great question I came across years ago that goes like this. What would my church be if every member was just like me? What would my church be if every member was passionate about Jesus the way I'm passionate about Jesus? Or what would my church be if every member was lukewarm the way I'm lukewarm? What would my church be if every member talked to people and about people the way I talk to people and about people? What would my church be if, if everyone here loved God the way I love God, loved people the way I love people, was committed the way I'm committed? Man, that's a good question. 
So here's what I would say. Maybe instead of saying, what would Jesus write to the, the church in Oklahoma? Let's bring it home just a little closer. What would Jesus write to me? What would Jesus say to me? And I think that there are probably some here today who Jesus might say, you need to repent. You need to stop what you're doing. You need to get rid of the sin that you know is in your life. You need to get rid of the bad behavior. You need to turn yourself completely over to me. Surrender to me. You need to repent. My guess is there are some people who Jesus would say, you need to remember who you are and why you're here. Remember that this is a church, not a country club. I think you might say to some of us, you need to, to get rid of the, those personal pronouns, I, me, mine, and start talking about we and us. Because it's not what I like, what I think, what I prefer. It is what is good for the body of Christ. Remember who you are and why you're here. And to some, I think he would probably say, I know that life is tough right now. I know you're getting pounded from every side. I know that there are days where it is hard for you just to get up and get out of bed and get dressed. Hold on. Hold on, don't give up. Hold on, don't throw in the towel. Hold on, I'm not finished yet. Hold on, I love you. Hold on, I care for you. Hold on, I've got something better for you. But hold on. I think Jesus would say the same things to us that he said to these churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Let let me finish up today by telling you my my favorite story. I'm going to share my favorite story. It's a true story. It's about a a missionary named Milton Cunningham who was on an airplane. He was flying from Atlanta to Dallas. And he, he got on the plane and had three seats on one side of the aisle, three seats on this side of the aisle. His seat was the middle seat. There's a little girl in the window seat, and the, pass, the uh, aisle seat was empty at the time. He sat down, and he really didn't pay attention. He just knew it was a little girl over here. He was sitting there, and he felt a tap on his knee. And he looked over, and the little girl was looking at him, and she was a little girl with Down syndrome. And she said, Mister, did you brush your teeth today? He said, Well, yes, honey, I did. And she said, Well, good. You ought to brush your teeth every day. A little later, she tapped him on the knee, and she's, she asked, Mister, do you smoke? He said, No, honey, I don't smoke. And she said, Good. Smoking will make you dead. And a little later, she tapped him on the knee, and she said, Mister, do you love Jesus? And he said, Oh, yes, honey, I love Jesus with all my heart. And she said, Good. Everybody ought to love Jesus. Right before the door closed, the last guy to get on, the last passenger, sat in that aisle seat. And if you've ever done any flying, you know the international sign for leave me alone is you sit down and you put up a book or magazine. That's what this guy did. They get up in the air and and Milton Cunningham said he felt a tap. And the little girl said, ask him if he brushed his teeth. He said, oh, honey, I don't think he wants to talk. I don't think we should ask him. Ask him. So he said, sir, my little friend here wants to know, did you brush your teeth this morning? And he looked, and when he saw the little girl, he smiled, and he said, well, yes, I did. She said, good, you ought to brush your teeth every day. A few moments later, tapped him on the knee, asked him if he smokes. said, honey, it's a non-smoking flight. It doesn't matter if he, he smokes. He's not going to smoke. Ask him. He said, sir, my little friend here has another question. She wants to know, do you smoke? And he said, no, I don't. And the little girl said, 
good. Smoking will make you dead. At that time, Milton Cunningham, the missionary, began to pray. He prayed, dear God, no, please, no, no. Tap, tap, tap. The little girl said, ask him if he loves Jesus. And he said, oh, honey, that's a really personal question. I don't think we should ask him that. Ask him. So I said, sir, my little friend here has one more question. I think it's the last one. She wants to know, do you love, G- do you love Jesus? And the man's smile disappeared, and he said, no, I don't. But then he added, it's not that I don't want to. I just don't know how. So from Atlanta to Dallas, Milton Cunningham, the missionary, was able to tell this man that there is a God who loved him so much that he sent his son to give his life for him so that he could spend eternity in heaven with that God who loved him so much because a little girl with Down syndrome asked a question. Folks, I believe there's a lesson in there for the church today. You see, I am convinced that within 10, 15 miles of this building, there are thousands and thousands of people who don't love Jesus. And for a lot of them, it isn't because they don't want to. They don't know how. That's why we're here. That's who we are. And may we never fall into the trap of simply going to church. Let's be the church. Let's be the church that impacts our world for Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that you are a God who loves us. I thank you that you are a God who cares about every area of our lives. And God, I thank you that in this book of Revelation, you included these letters to seven churches that aren't that different than us. And God, I pray that when we walk away from this place today, that we will be hearing what you have to say to us. God, I pray that we wouldn't be thinking about how someone else should have been listening. I pray, Father, that you will speak to us and help us to know what you want us to do, what you want us to be. God, if we need to hear you say, stop it and repent, I pray that we would stop and repent today. If we need to hear you say, remember who you are and why you're here, I pray that we would remember that today. And God, for those who are hurting and struggling, I pray that they will hear you say, hold on. Hold on, don't give up. I've got something better coming for you. God, I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.